everybody's taking their seats, let me go over a few announcements for this evening. Uh, Jeff has filled the slots. We've been announcing that he's looking for two men to accompany him to Brazil, and those slots are filled, so we can uh, take that off the prayer list and put that on the praise list. Then this Saturday morning, we're having our men's uh, prayer breakfast, 7.30 Saturday morning, and then we'll have our deacons meeting at 9 o'clock. Also make a note that in October, on the uh, October 20th, which is a Friday overnight, there'll be our annual uh, men's camp out. And also, um, I've talked with people, we've done this before, we ha I don't think I've ever announced it from the pulpit, but Memorial Shooting Center over here has a training center called 360 Tactical, and the shooting center has closed as of last Thursday, but their training and teaching and instruction uh, organization 360 Tactical is continuing and so they offer a basic and an advanced tactical pistol course. A lot of people have asked me questions about this and so that will be all day on November 11th. They go out to a range that is sort of south of south of town I think a little bit down the south southwest area. So if you have any questions about that, you can ask me. I don't have any answers right now because they had just announced the range was closing last Thursday, and so they've been moving all of their offices all week, and I've gotten a couple of emails saying, we will answer your questions once we get moved. So I'll have details uh, very, very soon. Okay, also a reminder of the uh, trip to D.C. for the Bible Museum. Now, some people have thought that, well, should I go to the Bible Museum or should I go to Israel? Israel is the original museum of the Bible. Okay? Just think of it that way. Ten days instead of three days. So keep that. And all the information for that is up on the website. And the memorial service for Sally Davis is going to be on Saturday morning, October the 14th at 11 a.m. So we have now uh, time to announce. How shall a young man cleanse his way? By taking heed thereto according to thy word. Thy word have I hid in my heart that I might not sin against thee. Thy word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. Jesus prayed to the Father, sanctify them in truth. Thy word is truth. For the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God shall stand forever. Before we get started, we'll have a few moments of silent prayer so you can make sure that you are in right relationship uh, with the Lord. And when we sin, that fellowship, that rapport is broken. It's recovered through confession, which simply means to admit or acknowledge our sin to God, and he instantly forgives us of those sins and cleanses us from all unrighteousness. So after a few moments of silent prayer, then I, will, um, then I will lead us in prayer. Let's pray. Our Father, we're so thankful for your grace and your goodness. We're thankful for all the people who have uh, given generously and graciously to the Harvey Fund. And as we've looked out more and more, across this city the last few days we realized just how devastating this is and what a mammoth task it is to clean up and how many people's lives have just been turned upside down 
because of this storm. Father, we're thankful that uh, we can be used by you to participate in blessing some of these people and helping them to the degree that we can and for those who are willing to help out. Father, we pray that we would continue to be able to uh, help in the days to come and weeks to come and in some cases months to come before people are back back in their homes. Father, we're thankful for this evening too that Moses is with us and that uh, he'll be giving us a report on his uh, uh, trips and travels in, in Africa, and we just continue to uh, rejoice in the fact that there are many who hear the truth, hear the gospel uh, through his ministry. And now, Father, we pray that you would open our minds, the eyes of our soul will be enlightened, that we might understand that which you have to reveal to us. We pray this in Christ's name, amen. Okay, we are in a study of Psalm 18, so open your Bibles with me to Psalm 18. It is a 50-verse psalm. Last week we did verse 1. This week we're going to do verse 2. I am not going to be that slow going all the way through verse by verse, but as is true in many psalms, what you have at the beginning is a foundation that is really laid for what is coming up in the psalm. And as we saw last time, the background for this psalm is given in the superscript. And it, talks, it is, tells us that David wrote this psalm at the time or on the day that the Lord delivered him from the hand of all of his enemies and from the hand of Saul. And so this was written between... Uh, the end of 1 Samuel, the beginning of 2 Samuel, and as we're studying through uh, these two books on Tuesday night, this is the appropriate place to fit this in historically. As I pointed out last time, it is also recorded in 2 Samuel in chapter 22, but there are some differences, and uh, most scholars believe that the reason is that as it was written uh, and adapted in Second Samuel 22 was because at the end of David's life, this was being incorporated within the public worship in the temple. So that is taking what he wrote earlier, adapting it to public worship, whereas this psalm, as it stands in Psalm 18, is the way in which David expressed his, his thanks to God. And so as we get into the second verse, we're going to see how he's using all these uh, incredible metaphors to describe how God is our defense and our protector. And it's fun to go through those and to see what they mean and how foundational they are to really understand many different things that are said about God and related to us in, in the scripture. So we saw last time that it's written to the chief musician, it's a psalm, which uh, literally means that uh, it's it just a mizmor, just a psalm to God. Uh, that's just one of the general terms. It's written by David. I pointed out last time that there's no reason to disavow this or to think that somebody else wrote this. It's typical among many uh, modern scholars to... Uh, David couldn't have written this for one reason or another. They deny Mosaic authorship. They deny that Daniel wrote Daniel. They deny the claims of the scripture as to who wrote numerous things because that just doesn't fit their preconceived rationalist or naturalist uh, conceptions. 
It's a psalm of David, the servant of the Lord, who spoke to the Lord the words of this song on the day that the Lord delivered him from the hand of all his enemies and the hand of Saul. And he said, that is in the superscript, whereas it's in the first verse, actually in the Hebrew text, the superscript is the first verse, but in the English first verse, and he said is uh, part of that. The theme, the psalmist expresses his gratitude or joy and prays for the Lord's miraculous deliverance by explaining the circumstances of his distress and the merciful response of God to his pleas for deliverance. And that's the lesson that we learn. We ought to keep in mind a couple of things when we talk about the Psalms. And one of these is that they are designed to teach us, to instruct us. One of the ways they teach us is through the content that's there. But another way that they teach us is to give us a pattern for prayer, to teach us how to give thanks to God, to teach us how we can pray in a more structured, organized way, coming out of the background that most of us come from, whether it's Baptist or Bible church, independent churches, uh, in the history of Christianity from the uh, really going back to the uh, 18th century and on up, one of the things that, that is uh, valued in our tradition being a little more informal, more what they call low church instead of high church, is uh, impromptu prayers uh, rather than written thought-out prayers. And yet, when you take the time to contemplate what's going on in the Psalms, these are well-thought-out prayers. They are not just prayers that are given uh, on the spur of the moment, prayers are prayers that are impromptu. They are prayers that are well-organized, well-structured, structured, where the writer is paying attention not only to what is said, but how it is being said, so that it is said in a way that complements what is said, and it's said in a way that, that reflects part of God's creation. God is a God of order, and God created all of the universe, Psalm 19, which is a compa- almost a companion to this psalm. Uh, there are certain themes in Psalm 18 that are echoed in Psalm 19. In fact, as many of you know, uh, the next couple of weeks, I'll be here Thursday and I'll be here Sunday, because I know if I don't tell you I'm going to be here on Sunday, then some of you just won't show up. That doesn't honor God, but that's another story. I will be here Sunday, but I won't be here next week or the next week. John is going to cover on Tuesday nights. He's got some really great material that he's going to go through. I've been working with him on that for the last uh, three or four weeks. And then on Thursday night, I will be pre-recording a session tomorrow for those Thursday nights on Psalm 19. And Psalm 19 is, as I said, a companion to this, talking about how God's uh, revelation both general and special, uh, is designed to challenge us and to also bring us to teach us some things about sanctification. And that's what we have in Psalm 18, is it's got a didactic purpose to teach us about prayer, to teach us about what it means uh, to give thanks. 
Now, he begins with the statement in Psalm 18.1, I will love you, O Lord, my strength. And we began to look at this last time. We covered the first verse. And the word for love is a unique word in this section. In, because normally, God is the subject. God is the one who exercises this kind of love. It is, the normal word that we find for love is ahav, or we find the word chesed, which is translated mercy or loving kindness or loyal, faithful love. But this is the word racham, which comes from a noun meaning the, the womb, and it has the idea, carries the idea of a deep passionate or compassionate love and it's used 17 times in the Old Testament and in this case a human is speaking to God and I concluded that this shows the level of spiritual maturity that David has reached. He has grown and matured through his time in the wilderness as God has taken him through the testing he has matured. That's what James 1, 2 through 4 talks about, to count it joy when we encounter various trials because we know that the testing of our faith produces endurance, and endurance will have its mature and completing uh, result in our lives. And so David has matured, so he's expressing this. He's not, even though it's translated in what looks like a a future tense in English, I will love you, Lord, as if that's something he's saying he will do in the future. He is really, the way it's stated using the Hebrew grammar, he is stating something that is an ongoing reality. It might be better to catch it, I love you, Lord, and the reason I love you is what he's going to cover in Psalm 18, as God has answered his prayer to deliver him from the oppression from Saul. So it is uh, more of a statement uh, of what has come to be true in his life as a result of God's working in his life and delivering him from Saul. So he is stating this. And I want you to notice as well that when he addresses God here, he uses the, uh, you see that it's capital, capitalized in your text. And that shows that it is a translation of Yahweh in the Hebrew, which means this is relating to God as the covenant God. Now, when David wrote this, he had not yet entered into a covenant with God in terms of the Davidic covenant, but God is the covenant God of, of Israel. And so he is expressing that. That's always That idea is always in the background when we see the uppercase Lord translating Yahweh. And then he refers to the Lord as my strength. O Lord, my strength. Now, this is the Hebrew word chesek, which, as I was searching for it uh, in my, uh, uh, how many times it's used in the, in the Old Testament, I kept coming up with nothing. That's because this is the only place that this form of this word is used. The verb form, chazak, is used many, many times, but the noun form in the masculine form is only used in this particular place. Now, one of the things that we observe as we look at the usage of the verb, that the verb often is used to refer to being strengthened in a military context. 
where uh, someone is given aid or strength in battle in order to win the battle. And that, of course, makes perfect sense contextually if David is writing this to praise God for delivering him in this battle that he's been in with Saul. While he hasn't been in a literal physical war with Saul, Saul's been in a war with him trying to kill him. And God has given him the victory in this situation. He's waited on the Lord and he refused to take matters into his own hands and to try to... uh, take Saul's life. So he respected who Saul, I mean, he respected Saul's office as the anointed of the Lord, even though Saul as a person in his disobedience to God, his rebellion against God was not somebody who was worthy of respect. And that's a lesson we all have to learn. And it's a lesson that parents need to teach their children and that grandparents need to teach their children probably and grandchildren as well, is that when we have political leaders We are to respect the office, even though we may not respect the person. And the same thing is true in a marriage where the husband is the head of the home and he's to be, his office is to be respected, even if he's an unbeliever, even if he is not worthy because of his personal character of respect, the office is because authority and authority orientation is inherent to being spiritually focused in life because the basic root sin, the original sin of the universe was a sin of rebellion against the authority of God. And so it is always when there's rebellion against authority, a lack of respect for that, uh, that authority, uh, then it's always arrogance that's operational. Now that doesn't mean Uh, There are a lot of things that people get messed up with on that. Respecting authority means you're not going to slander them. You're not going to run them down. You're not going to be uh, bitter, and you're not going to seek vengeance against that person. Uh, You're not going to obey that person in authority when they want you to do something that is contrary to God's word. But you are not going to lift your hand against them to Uh, destroy them. That's what David refused to do. So now he's praising God because God delivered him. We cast our care upon the Lord and he provides the solution for us. So the emphasis here is that God is the one who has empowered him and given him the strength to survive and have victory in this conflict with Saul. And then he expands upon this in the second verse. Second verse, he says, the Lord is my rock and my fortress and my deliverer, my God, my strength in whom I will trust, my shield and the horn of my salvation, my stronghold. And so what we see here is that he is using these different uh, images, these different uh, metaphors in order to picture God as the one who protects us and the one who sustains us and the one who is our defense. So we have seven different words that are used here that we need to take some time to look at because we'll find that they're repeated a lot, especially in the Psalms, and they have some underlying uh, significance as well and how they are used throughout throughout the text. So the first word that we see translated as rock is the word selah. Now I'm going to point something out to you. 
look down in that third line and says, my God, my strength, and I put a question mark after that. Because the word that is translated strength there is the Hebrew word sur, which means rock. Okay? So they're both talking about uh, something that is made up of stone that is uh, worthy of providing protection. So they're looking at it from some different, uh, some different ways. So we're going to have to retranslate that strength into something that fits the context a little bit better, and I'm not quite sure what that would, would be, but it comes from this idea of, uh, of a, large, a large rock that provides protection. So the first word for rock is silah, and we have it used in several different places that are comparable. Some of them have numerous metaphors, just like our passage here in um, 18.2 does, that help us to picture God as this surrounding protector that uh, delivers us in times of trouble. Psalm 31.3, for example, says, For you are my rock and my fortress. We'll run into this again. It has uh, the word for rock here, Selah, and the word Matzadah, for fortress as well. And he says, Therefore, for your name's sake. Now, we've studied this before, that whenever the Scripture says something for your name's sake or on the basis of your name, the name reflects the character of someone. For example, when... Uh, when Isaac was born, he was named Yitzhak, which means laughter. And we're told that the reason he's called laughter is because when God told Abraham that he and Sarah would uh, conceive and have a son, that Sarah is snickering back in the other end of the tent when she hears that because she's too old to have a child. So he says, okay, God said you're going to name him laughter to remind you that you didn't really believe me when I said so. So names reflect something about character. And so when it's done in the name of God, it's done uh, on the basis of his character, all that he is, who he is. So uh, Psalm 31.3, therefore, for your name's sake, on the basis of your character, lead me and guide me. Now, there's an argument there. I want you to note these things that when David is petitioning God, he's saying on the basis of your character, God, your character is at stake here. You need to lead me and guide me. And so he's presenting a rationale for why God should answer his prayer. Now in Psalm 42, 9, he says, I will say to God, my rock. So God is defined by as, as a rock. That's a name for him. God, my rock. It's appositional says, I will say to God, my rock, why have you forgotten me? Why did I go mourning because of the oppression of the enemy? And so we see a hint there that God is uh, given the name of rock, and we'll see that a little uh, more as we go through this study. In Psalm 71.3, David is also praying to God, be my strong refuge. A strong refuge is another way of talking about a fortress or a strong tower or a rock hiding in the cleft or the crack of the rock for protection. So that's how he addresses God, be my strong refuge, to which I may resort continually, not just on occasion, 
not just when things get really bad, then you start showing up at church to go learn what God has for you so you can straighten up a little bit until the crisis goes by, but you resort to God as a refuge continually. And then David says, you have given the commandment to save me, for you are my rock and my fortress. So here we have our word, Selah, my rock. And again, it's connected to the idea of a fortress. God it protects us. Now, we can go into the New Testament, and we also find this imagery of the rock. Now it gets a little tighter because the New Testament is going to help us understand the significance of this rock metaphor and identifies it with Christ. 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 4. And as Paul is writing here, let's just turn there. We're going to flip around through a few passages tonight, and I want you to pick up the context. We're going to go to 1 Corinthians chapter 10, and then we're going to go to Exodus chapter 17, which is the event that is being uh, referred to in 1 Corinthians chapter 10. And I want to do this because of some things I've heard recently. I want to point something out. 1 Corinthians chapter 10, Moreover, brethren, I do not want you to be unaware that all our fathers were under the cloud, all passed through the sea. Now, who's that describing? That's describing the Israelites coming out of Egypt at the time of the Exodus. And so the fathers there is a term that refers to long past generations. And they were under the cloud, they passed through the sea, all were baptized or identified with Moses in the cloud and in the sea. That's talking about the Red Sea in the cloud, talking about the pillar of uh, cloud that was leading them through the wilderness. And then in verse 3 says, all ate the same spiritual food. That's described in Exodus chapter 16, verse 13, where the bread and the manna are associated with the Lord Jesus Christ, who in John says that he is the bread of life. And they all drank the same spiritual drink. That's related here to the water. And it says they drank the same spiritual drink, for they drank of the spiritual rock, that followed them, and that rock was Christ. So this is relating the rock of the episode to the Lord Jesus Christ, who is their rock and protector, protecting them from their enemies while they're in the wilderness. So let's turn a little bit of a sword drill time tonight to make sure you haven't forgotten where to go in your Bibles. I teach you to type fast so you can put the reference into your whatever device you're using, Exodus chapter 17. As the Israelites are going through the uh, wilderness, after they've left Egypt, they're beginning to get thirsty, and they are running out of water. Now, that's a, water was a serious thing in the wilderness because it's desert. There's very few places to get water. The wells are scattered, and you've got 3 million people that you have to provide water for. So we're told in verse 1 that all the children of Israel set out on their journey from the wilderness of it's not sin. Okay? If you were to, that's how most of us pronounce it as it's anglicized, but it would be in Hebrew, it would be seen, and it is the root of Sinai. Okay? So Mount Sinai is in the wilderness of sin, a scene, 
according to the commandment of the Lord, and they camped at Rephidim, but there was no water for the people to drink. So the people contended with Moses. They start complaining and uh, griping about everything, that, that, and they're going to indicate their rebellion. They have very short uh, patience with Moses, and this is just another test indicating that they uh, haven't learned any of their spiritual lessons. And so Moses says, why are you contending with me? Why do you tempt or test the Lord? And the people continue to complain against Moses in verse 3, and that he's brought them out of the wilderness just to kill him. How did he have the patience to deal with these three million complaining, griping people? So he cries out to the Lord in verse 4. That's a solution to every problem, is to go to the Lord in prayer. And he addresses the Lord and says, What shall I do with these people? They're about ready to stone me. Notice that the writer brings out these aspects related to a rock. They're going to stone him. And so the Lord gives him instructions in verse 5 to go before the people. And you're going to take in your hand your rod, that is your shepherd's staff with which you struck the river, and then you're going to stand there on the rock in Horeb, which is another name for Mount Sinai, and you shall strike the rock. Now, I want you to expand your image here, because for many of us, you probably heard this in vacation Bible school or Sunday school, and your picture of a rock was probably something that wasn't much bigger than about, if it was this big, eight or nine feet high and about six or seven feet across. This is a huge, we'll see a picture of a rocky escarpment later on in the slideshow uh, from, um, uh, from uh, Caesarea Philippi. But this was a huge rock outcropping. We've got to provide water for three million people. This is going to be a river of water that's going to come out of this rock. It's not just a stream or a creek or a flooded buffalo bio. It's going to be a huge amount of water that's going to be uh, very clean and potable, and God is providing perfectly for them. And so he's told to stand before the rock, and you'll strike the rock. Water will come out of it that the people may drink and Moses did so in the sight of the elders uh, of Israel. That's 17.6. So the point that we get by interpretation, information that they didn't have at that time, is that that rock represents Christ. Christ is the rock. He provides the water of life. And so this is, again, a picture that God is the one who provides for us. He's the one who protects us, providing food and water is part of his responsibility of protection. And so we see this theme developing uh, through the scriptures. In the, um, also, we see in 1 Peter 2.8, that this is applied to Christ as a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. And so this idea continues all the way through the scripture that he is this, this particular rock. And so when we look at one of the most central passages on this in uh, Matthew uh, 16, 18, when Jesus has asked Peter, who do, pe who, do you who do people say that I am? And then who do you say that I am? And Jesus said, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And the Lord says, and I also say to you that you are Peter. And on this rock now, 
there was a lot of discussion about who that rock is on this rock. Is this on this rock talking about Peter because there's a play on words there because Peter's name means rock? Or is it talking about on this rock and it's referring to his statement, his confession of who Jesus is as the Messiah? Or, and this is the view I take based on how rock is used, who is the rock in the Bible? The rock is God, or the rock is Jesus. So when Jesus says, on this rock, I think he's pointing to himself. On this rock, on himself, he is the chief cornerstone. He is the rock on whom the church is built. It's not built on Peter. I know that that is something that uh, I won't get a chance to straighten the Pope out next week when I'm in Rome, but that's the problem that they have, is they think that Peter is the rock that is the foundation uh, for the church and that the Pope is the uh, descendant of, of, of Peter and that that's the rock and that's just a totally bogus ecclesiology and it is no longer Christocentric it is man-centered it's not centered on Christ at all so it's on this rock on Christ that he builds his church and the gates of Hades shall not prevail against it. Now, we'll see what that means when we get a little further along and talk about the next use of a synonym for rock. And so God is our rock. He is our fortress. And he's the one who provides that which delivers us from our trials, whether it's physical deliverance or whether it is spiritual deliverance at the cross by trusting in him as our Savior. Now, the next word is the word fortress. In the Hebrew, it's uh, metzada, which we anglicize as masada. But in the Hebrew, it's metzada. Now, if you're not familiar with, uh, with masada, masada is a fortress, desert fortress down by the Dead Sea. That's what the word means, is a stronghold or a fortress. And it is. it looks like this today. Uh, we usually go there on a trip to Israel, and it's a, just a fabulous thing to go see. You're, you're overlooking the Dead Sea. Now, the Dead Sea is about 12 to 1,300 feet below sea level. And if you're up on top of, uh, of Masada, you are about 400 feet to 500 feet below sea level. There's a 900-foot difference. So you're still very much below surface here. Now, at the time of Herod, he rebuilt this as a fortress. So if the Parthians came or if some other enemy came and he had to flee again, which he had to do uh, right after he took the throne, and he sent his family here, and this is where they were hidden and protected from the Parthians when they attacked uh, attacked Judea, and he fled first to Cleopatra and then to um, then to uh, uh, Augustus in uh, in Rome, and then later he rebuilt it. And so this is a picture of what that fortress uh, looked like. See, I'll do that again. See, isn't this fun? That's what it looks like today, and this is what it looked like back in the time when Herod rebuilt it. And down here along the, just below here, this is where the palace was located, and this is where he had his 
some of his, uh, he had a pool down here and some other things. This is where he would uh, have his uh, parties. But he actually never went to live there. I think he visited it once or twice, but uh, never did. But they had a, uh, a contingent of soldiers here. Later on, at the time of the Jewish revolt, in 66 to 70, after the temple was destroyed, after Jerusalem was destroyed, there was a holdout of zealots that made their way here, and they held out against the Romans uh, for about three years, and finally they decided, the Romans decided, they couldn't let this group of zealots hold out down here, so they sent a, uh, a, a legion down here, a couple of legions to take them out, and they built this ramp here that you can see they built this ramp and they brought their siege engines up and then they broke through the gate on this uh, this backside of of Masada but so that they wouldn't be taken alive and enslaved the night before they knew they would um, be be uh, taken they all committed suicide until it got down to the last small group and then they killed each other and then the last man uh, committed suicide so it was um, it was their last stand. That's why in Israel, it's, it's considered this will never happen again. And that's their motto, never again. And they go to Masada. Many of the, of the great uh, airborne brigades and armor brigades will com- get, receive their commissions here at Masada. And many people take, the, because this area here was a synagogue, there are uh, numerous people who will go there and take their young boys there where they are bar mitzvahed. And it's, it's tremendous to watch some of those ceremonies. So we have uh, one other use here. Well, we'll see them both in Psalm 31.3 and 71.3. I pointed those out earlier when talking about the rock, but both of these use this word metzada for fortress. Also in Psalm uh, 91.2, I will say of the Lord, he is my refuge and my fortress. My God, in him I will trust. He is the fortress. Whatever the problem is, whatever, you, however you are being attacked spiritually, the picture in the Old Testament is of a fortress. The picture in the New Testament is putting on the full armor of God. That is what protects us in the midst of trials and adversities. And then in Psalm 144, verse 2, we read, My loving kindness, emphasizing chesed, God's faithful, loyal love, his covenantal love, and my fortress, my high tower, and my deliverer. Now, I put in the Hebrew word there. The Hebrew word there is palat. The next term we're going to find in uh, Psalm 18 is that God is called a deliverer. And so that's this word, this verb, uh, palat. So it's connecting these words. And my shield, uh, magen. And if you are in Israel, you will hear about their uh, magen David, which is the shield of David, and that's part of their, their ambulance corps, like the Red Red Cross. So you have my shield and the one in whom I take refuge, who subdues my people under me. So the third term that is used here is the term deliverer. The Lord is my rock and my fortress and my deliverer. And the verb there means to escape, someone who pr- provides escape, 
uh, one who saves. It has, can be physical. It can be uh, health-wise. It can, and then it would be translated healing uh, to save or to deliver or rescue and also has a, an overtone of spiritual salvation. Psalm 37.40 says, uh, The Lord shall help them and deliver them. He shall deliver them from the wicked. The first word for deliver there isn't, uh, isn't the same word. So this word pellet is used 27 times in the Old Testament, 19 in the Psalms. And it has uh, this word, this meaning of rescue and deliver is limited to just the Psalms. And so it is a basis for praising God because God is the one who uh, delivers, uh, delivers his people. And it is often used in parallelism with words for refuge, for uh, matzadah, for, for fortress, uh, for uh, etzer, for the one who helps. Uh, for all of these various terms are used again and again to indicate God's protection. These are great verses to memorize and to recall when you're going through difficult times. It's used as a verb in terms of a prayer in Psalm 71, verse 2, deliver me in your righteousness and cause me to escape, to get away, to survive. And David prays, incline your ear to me and save me. And then in Psalm 91.14, because he has set his love upon me, therefore I will deliver him, God says. He has set, David has set his love upon me, therefore I will deliver him. I will set him on high because he has known my name. And then in Psalm 144, verse 2, we see another list like we have in Psalm 18.2. My loving kindness and my fortress, my high tower, my deliverer, my shield, and the one in whom I take refuge, who subdues my people under me. So again and again, we see these same words and find them together. And then we come to the fourth word in the list. He's my, my God is my, the Lord is my rock and my fortress and my deliverer. And then he says, my God, and he shifts from Yahweh to Elohim my God, my strength, in whom I will trust. And the word here for strength is tzor. It can refer to a boulder, a large rock, or almost an escarpment. And I think this is what we see in the backdrop in that passage I referred to a minute ago in Matthew chapter uh, 16, verse 13. Now, the, if you can't see the backdrop of that slide very well, what we have here is a, it's a large a cone-shaped uh, device that rolls around a bed of sand. And on that cone-shaped device, you have the words of this passage. And so when you roll it around the sand, what is imprinted in the sand is the uh, uh, English of this passage, okay? So when Jesus came to this region of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, saying, Who do men say that I, the Son of Man, am? Now this is the area we're talking about here. Here's the Sea of Galilee. This is far to the north at a place called Caesarea uh, Philippi. And it's just below 
uh, the area where D the ancient city of Dan was located. So it's far in the north. Uh, we try to go there on almost every trip that we uh, take. And we go up from uh, Bethsaida up to Caesarea Philippi. It's a tremendous area. And they ask, who do men say that I, Jesus asked, who do men say that I the son of man am? They, so some say John the Baptist, some say Elijah, and others, Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. And then Jesus says, but who do you say that I am? And this is where, Jesus, where Peter says, you are the Messiah. He would have said this, they were probably, uh, uh, you know, whatever language he was using, probably Greek, because the wordplay here doesn't make sense unless it's in Greek. You are the Christos, the Christ, the Son of the living God. And then Jesus answered and said to him, Blessed are you, Simon, son of John, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And then he says, And I also say to you that you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church. Now this is the rock escarpment. These are temples to the Greek god Pan. And this area is known as Banyas. And you say, well, how do you get Banyas out of Pan? Well, it's because the Arabs can't pronounce the letter P. Therefore, there's no such thing as a Palestinian. <laughs> the Palestinians. So the Greek god Pan was worshipped here. This was a place where uh, they would come. And you see here this temple. You see a little bit of a dark area behind it. This was a hole into the earth. And this was considered one of the gates of Hades. Okay? And you had another temple here. Now we're going to see those holes right here. There they are. These were the openings to, into Hades. And so when Jesus says, I say to you that you are Peter on this rock, he's got this huge rock escarpment behind him. It's massive. And he's making this analogy that he is this rock. He is this, this power. It's overwhelming. He says, on this rock, referring to himself, I will build my church and the gates of Hades. He just didn't grab that out of thin air. He's standing right there, right at the gates of Hades. And so you have... Uh, this is a marker here for the, the, the cave there telling you about that. And here's another look at, at the size of the cave and the size of the rock escarpment that Jesus, is his language is playing off of his surrounding environment. There's a few people in some of these pictures you probably uh, recognize. There's Doug Karn if you don't see him. And there's a couple of pastors who are about to charge the gates of hell with the teaspoon of water or something like that so jesus is talking about peter as petros it's a play on words again there's a lot of interesting things going on here peter is petros and then he says on this rock um, and petros has the idea of a small rock or a broken off piece of rock you know sort of like we might call somebody stony and uh, so he's just uh, stony, he's just a chip off the old block, but Jesus says on this rock, which is a term petra, meaning a very large rock, then he will build his church. 
And then he goes on to talk about Peter's authority and the authority of the apostles. says, I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. What's the key? What's the key? The key is the gospel. And he says, whatever you bind on earth will have already been bound in heaven. God has already determined whoever believes in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ will be saved. And if you communicate the gospel to them and they believe, they will be uh, bound and whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. Incidentally, this is also rabbinical language for judgment, for bringing judgment or releasing from judgment. And so Jesus then says, Therefore, whoever hears these sayings of mine and does them, I will liken him to a wise man who builds his house on the rock. Who are we supposed to build our house on? It's Jesus. Jesus is the rock all through this in Scripture. So what we've seen so far in this verse, and then I'm going to close because uh, Moses is going to come up and uh, tell us, give us a report on his ministry and his travels in Africa and different things like that after I close in prayer. David writes, my God, my strength, in whom, he says my, in the second stanza, my God, my strength, that is my boulder, my escarpment, my, my, my enormous rocky foundation, in whom I will trust. And the word there for trust is the word for batak, the word for confidence. I have confidence in God because no one can shake up this rock. It's bigger than anything. And so it will provide stability for me no matter how unstable and chaotic the circumstances may be. And when we get back to continue this, I only got through half the verse that will encourage you that we'll be in this psalm for a while. Uh, then we will look at the rest of it and down into verse 3. But what happens, he gets very, um, there's a lot of figurative language and metaphor describing as he does uh, what God, what his situation was and what God does. He talks about the pangs of death surrounded me and the floods of ungodliness made me afraid. So it moves fairly rapidly after we get through this very concrete language that's used here, even though it's metaphor as well, it's co more concrete what it's teaching, and then we will uh, go on. But if you look at verse 31, it's another verse to memorize. For who is God except Yahweh, except the Lord. And who is a rock except our God? He is our rock. Father, thank you for this opportunity to uh, study these things this, um, this evening and to be reminded that you are our defense, you are our protector, and that we may think that we can solve the problems of life without you, but you are the one who protects us in all of the storms of life that no matter what happens, you are the one who gives us that stability, that foundation to handle whatever comes our way. Father, we need to learn, as Peter did, to cast our care upon you because you care for us. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen. All right, Moses, for those of you who don't know Moses Anwabiko, uh, Moses is uh, originally Nigerian, came to the U.S., He's an evangelist, he travels to Africa, travels to India, been to Pakistan, a number of other places, been to South America. He's going to go down to uh, the south, south side of Houston this next three nights. So you're going to challenge some people at a church. Some of you may have come down to hear me when I used to come down from Connecticut and speak at Richard Rose's church. He's going to be there the next three nights 
uh, teaching on Christology. So he's going to come up and give us a summary overview of what he's been doing in his travels. You just got back from Africa not too long ago, probably still jet lagged. Okay, come here's your microphone here. What a pleasure to be with you here this evening. It's always uh, good to come back and visit, although it has been a while since uh, every time uh, something is going on and a conflict. But I thank God for the opportunity to be visiting you tonight. And thank uh, Dr. Dean for his hard work and for his studies and uh, everything he does to bring the truth out. And this truth not only stays here, it travels also all over the world. I remember vividly when I first went to Kenya, and that was uh, several years ago. I didn't know that uh, the conference was uh, hundreds of pastors. They invited me to, to come and do a conference for them. And they had a very big banner. And I didn't read the banner. I just was curious to get started. So I walked in and I started teaching uh, the overview of uh, the church and the spiritual gifts. And I got to the point of speaking about uh, the temporary gifts. And when I came and I spoke about the issue of apostleship and let them know that apostle, the gift of apostle is no longer in progress, that that has ceased. So I went on to expand on that, and I didn't know that the banner was the gathering of the apostles. So that the people who gathered the whole hall were so-called apostles. They had their name tags, Apostle this, Senior Apostle this, but I didn't know. <laughs> so I didn't know that I was bombing the whole people who have come as apostles. And after I expanded the word, one of them came and said, would you mind, can you come to my church and teach this and let them know that I'm no longer an apostle? I said, now that you know the truth, <laughs> you can go back and in humility present the truth to them. And so, a good number of them, they were taken aback by the teaching. They said, if this truth, if what you thought is the truth, it has to change lives. So when I left, they began, they formed a group and started looking into the scripture like the Bereans. And they ordered tapes. I gave them a link. They ordered the materials from... A, Baraka and materials from uh, Dr. Dean's uh, from this church 
and they send, you are sending them materials and they studied every day for weeks and they finally saw that what I was teaching them was the truth. And to this very day, they have gone from one corner to another teaching the same truth that they have received. It is uh, it's when we travel, Dr. Dean will uh, vouch because he too has traveled extensively. He has traveled overseas and ministered. It's difficult to explain until you travel outside. Uh, we have so much here. We have library. We have uh, whatever we need in our fingertips. We get it all. But when you go to overseas, like third world countries, not so. And most of these people are not even trained academically, let alone theologically. And these are pastors. I remember being in Pakistan. We are in a uh, when I when I go in a place where I can I do both I do evangel evangelism whereby I preach to people outside that is unbelievers then I do also uh, basic Bible teaching to these uh, pastors to help them at least get the foundation regarding the person and the work of Christ. And so I remember when I first went to Pakistan, I, they picked me up from the airport and straight to the crusade ground. And my luggage was still in the car. And so I uh, spoke to thousands of people on the ground, and that's in Pakistan. Uh, and uh, you looked everywhere you looked, you see people with machine guns standing guarding the people on the ground and guarding the platform where I was standing, giving them the gospel. And that's, for me, that's what I call spiritual warfare. Uh, being up front uh, and seeing, uh, <laughs> the, uh, seeing it live. And so, uh, after we preached to the, the people and uh, of course a good number of them came to Christ, then we, in the daytime, we will speak to the pastors. I remember vividly when I was just trying to explain who Jesus Christ is. In, in, in these Arab countries, they have a hard time understanding who Jesus is. They, of course, every Muslim believes they accept Jesus. But there's a dividing line. They do not accept him as God. They accept him as a prophet. They get excited. You say a good man, they get excited. You say God, uh-uh. There's a very thin line that divides, like uh, Pastor Dean just mentioned about Jesus' question to, to Peter, because that's the dividing line between eternity and, lake of, and the lake of fire. Who is Jesus? Who do people say that I am? And it was an important question because that's what separates 
the Pharisees and the Jews who rejected Messiah and those who accepted him as King of Kings and Lord of Lords. And so, as I was teaching and passing by, I was expanding on John 1, 1, that in the beginning, in eternity past, was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Uh, in verse 3, the same Word created all things. In other words, nothing was made apart from Him, and that He is the creator of all things. Uh, and in verse 14, He became flesh. In other words, He wasn't flesh before. God wrapped in human flesh. And so, as I, as I was just expanding on this, that wasn't the subject. And uh, after break, they were to have their lunch because it was a, a whole day program. One of the pastors came and sat down and said to me, did you say that Jesus is God? That's a deep doctrine. Jesus, God. Wow. That was a pastor. And so if a pastor didn't understand that Jesus is God, what about the congregation? And so we would take time to ex explain to them and to bring to their knowledge so that they can present the gospel accurately to their people. And so this is just a cross-section of when you see one area is the same. I was in Indonesia. And they took me, I have been in many places where they are Qaeda. Uh, when uh, I remember one time, they, we all arrived. They, they, my host drove me to a center and he told me, Reverend, this is the center, this is the capital, this is the area of Al Qaeda. I said, thank you for letting me know after we have arrived. Then uh, when uh, I have been teaching every day, uh, because that, that was the time I was gone for seven weeks uh, and for seven countries in a stretch, uh, starting from uh, Australia to Fiji and New Zealand to Cambodia, Singapore, Malaysia, and uh, uh, all the way to Indonesia. I was I was tired, seven weeks in seven going having gone to seven countries in a row, and so when I got to Indonesia, I had one day for rest before flying back because it was a long flight, and that was on Monday. And so I was my pastor the, the my the host came and asked me and said in the morning I said Reverend, guess what I said what. Today, we have pastors coming from all over. You're going to be speaking to them this evening. I said, this is my only day. I want to rest for seven weeks. He said, well, they already have already told them. And most of them are already on their way. I said, well, <laughs> what can I, how can I turn down those who are hungry for the truth? And so I... I didn't know because I have already finished all the things, all the preparation. I said, what can I teach in just two hours that is not in series? I said, yeah, I will teach them the deity of Christ. 
at least being in a Muslim country. And so, as I was, uh, the wife came and said, Reverend, I just have one question to ask you. I'm still, I'm still confused about Jesus Christ and the, how, he's, how he relates to God. I said, that's my topic tonight. And she was so glad. And so when I started teaching and expanding on the truth, they were very quiet, writing as fast as they can pen down. At the end of two hours, one of the, some of them went to the host and said, See, for the first time we have come to understand the relationship between Jesus and the Father and the Holy Spirit. Remember, a pastor came from America last time and taught us the same truth and we were more confused than ever. And we told him, we are confused. He said, yes, that's the way it's supposed to be. The more you know God, the more confused you get. I said, well, that's just a way to get out of a, something you can't explain. And so we go to places that the Lord opens doors in Middle East. Uh, I, I remember in, uh, in Turkey. I was in, uh, we were in Turkey. You all know Turkey is, Christianity is not uh, something to talk about in Turkey. Uh, and so we, I w they, it was underground. It's not, uh, when you talk about underground churches, it means underground. It's completely hidden. Only by invitation or somebody that know who and that's how people move around. And so they took, we went there and uh, I was speaking to a group of people. Uh, the same concept, because when I'm in, the, in, the, in those countries, I tried to make, draw the line particularly bringing the truth because that's the foundation of the gospel who is Jesus and so having uh, taken about an hour and expanding on the uh, person and the work of our Lord Jesus Christ about five people afterward I was just talking to somebody they came charging forward so excited and so and they said, we now, these are ISIS members, we used to go in the street and kill people for what we don't know. Now we know who Jesus is, that Jesus is God. We are willing to go out and start preaching Jesus. Let people come and kill us. Because now we know who Jesus is. Jesus is really God. So you don't know where you are. All you know is that you are trusting what uh, Dr. Dean taught us tonight. Uh, our Lord is your fortress. is your rock. Uh, is your deliverer. So you have nothing to be afraid of when you are where the Lord will have you be doing what the Lord would have you do. And so, the Lord has been faithful to us, to the ministry. We have traveled, uh, I have traveled to about 90 countries. Uh, 
both uh, in the six continents, except the one that I am still finding how to get there, uh, the one that is too much ice. <laughs> uh, so, Doctor Dean, when you find out how to get to that one, let me know. Uh, I will be following you behind. Uh, uh, so we we have uh, uh, the Lord has been so good to us, uh, using us not because uh, of anything we have, uh, uh, because of our ability, but because of His grace, He has been able to. God has taken us to places we never dreamed possible, uh, and we have uh, been able to minister to. Uh, groups of pastors who, like I said, don't know left from right. Uh, and they are hungry, passionately hungry for the truth. Uh, and the problem is every time we go is, can you come back? How soon can you come back? Can you send more people to us? Uh, and the field is so overripe. And the hunger is compelling. Is just reaching out to you, uh, and they are. Uh, sometimes I w- they will stay in my room till three a.m. asking questions. Uh, uh, it's, it's you dri- they driving you to the to, to the venue. Questions begin in the car. Uh, it just back and forth. You just see the depth of hunger in these people that are searching for God in Africa, in Asia, uh, particularly, uh, and some sketchy areas in Europe. And so uh, we are grateful for your prayers, and we are grateful to the Lord for all that you do here, holding the torch, as the Lord, as we, as the Lord told Elijah when he thought that he was the only one left. He said, not so fast. I still have 7,000 prophets who have not bowed to bow. And uh, this church is one of those 7,000 prophets, uh, groups, that is still, because of what is happening here, the Lord is still holding this nation standing. Uh, And uh, like I said, uh, the field is so ripe. And uh, many people go on a mission, but they don't have the truth. They go on the mission with work salvation. That you have to do something to earn your way. You have to work it out. And you have to do as much as you can to earn credit with God. Uh, I remember uh, when I was in Liberia, our host, uh, after he... One day, uh, there were hundreds of pastors. I ex- tried to explain to them grace, that salvation is nothing but by grace, through faith in Christ alone, that the work was already finished, nothing to add or subtract from it. And so when I explained the concept of grace to them, the pastor who hosted me came to the hotel the following morning with a blooming smile on his face and he sat on the couch and he said to me Reverend do you know I just got saved yesterday after 30 years as a pastor when you explained that faith 
is the only criteria for salvation. And you explain that the work was already done. I have been struggling all my life to be good, but I was never good enough. Uh, and so that's just, if a pastor doesn't know uh, how much more the congregation. Uh, and so this is what the Lord is, has allowed us the privilege of, uh, and this is not just in Liberia. I was just here in Belize. Uh, and the passenger, the, our driver was driving us to the airport. I asked him, if you were to die today, would you go to heaven? Do you know? He said, well, I'm not so sure. Because our pastor told us, if our good moral life, our good behavior is more than our bad behavior, we will make it. Our pastor told us. And being who Moses is, I joked with him. I said, what percentage? He said, if you are about 80% moral, you make it to heaven. I asked him, what is your percentage right now? He said, about 40%. But he's working hard to upgrade it. And I, I said, what about, there's a book, there's a place in the Bible who say, that says, if you keep the entire, whole, entire law, just one slight mistake will cancel everything. He said, that means nobody will go. I said, that's the point. The point is to, that nobody will go just by his own effort. That Jesus has completed his work. And in him, we are complete when we believe in him. And so, these are the things that we go on the mission field, bringing hope to those who are lost and destitute, and bringing encouragement to pastors who are on the field looking for help. And so, again, I want to thank this church for all that you do to keep missionaries afloat to keep them doing the work that the Lord has called us to do. It's, it's a division of labor. Not everyone will be overseas. Otherwise this place will be empty. Some will be here. Some will be overseas. And some will be elsewhere. And so division of labor. But we are all working together for one common goal. For the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. And so, uh, while my heart goes out for those who were bombarded by the hurricane, uh, we pray for you all. In fact, we pray for this church in our office in Nashville. We pray for Dean. We have a prayer list We have where we have listed this church for almost as long as this church has been in existence. So we have you all in our minds. And I know that you all are praying for us. As Paul tells the Corinthians uh, in, the, in the closing of his uh, chapter in First Corinthians 15, verse 58, he encouraged, he encouraged them to be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord. And he tells them why. Because you know that your work it's not in vain in the Lord. Thank you so much. Okay. Let's bow our heads in prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you 
for your grace and for your love expressed through your son Jesus Christ who hung on the cross 2,000 years ago and made the ultimate payment and then said it is finished we are thankful to you because you have called us your children as John said what manner of love the father had bestowed upon us that we should be called the children of God thank you for this local assembly that you have erected and so father we pray it is my prayer that this church will continue to be a beacon of light in this community pray for Dr. Dean and the leaders of this congregation that you continue to shelter them and continue to put your wall of fire around them and make it so strong. So we pray for every member of this church. Pray for those who were affected by the hurricane. And Father, please, that you will encourage them, knowing that one of the weapons the enemy uses against us is discouragement. And so we pray that you, God of encouragement, will strengthen their hearts and that you continue to build this church up, continue to uphold us, and continue to cause us to look to you as our rock. This is my prayer. In Christ's name, amen.